Happy Mother's Day. Two chapters today, Genesis chapter 7 and chapter 8. For those of you who know that I tend to preach between an hour and an hour and a half, you probably started to get a little nervous when we read through two chapters thinking you have dinner plans <laughs> and you're, you're wondering if you're going to make it. So uh, I'm not sure. We'll see. I mean, first service, I've I got a second service to get everybody out. But I mean, you got all day, right? <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, truth for all, truth for some. Whenever God's word is is preached, whenever God's word is read, there is truth that is important for all of us to understand. But you also know this is true, that um, there are times where the Spirit of God works in such a way that, that His truth reaches certain people in certain ways. And maybe those around them aren't reached in the, in the same ways. And I'm always praying that God will do, that God will do that. So through His truth today, through these two chapters, I'm, I'm thinking especially and praying especially for uh, two different kinds of people. The one is the unfaithful and the other is the forgotten. I think that Genesis chapter 7 has major encouragement of what those who are unfaithful should do. Those who do not know God. Those who do not know God and know that they do not know God and those who do not know God but think they do know God. And chapter 7 is it's big for you. And I think there's also people who are among us who are the forgotten. Forgotten by God. Not forgotten in reality, but forgotten in experience. So there are some of you who are probably here who either have or maybe now have felt forgotten by God. Even the psalmist at time will pray like this. We'll, we'll call out to God like the psalmist in Psalm 10 and say, Where are you, God? Where have you been, God? How can you sit idly by while my life unravels? Not really forgotten by God, not really alone, but feeling completely forgotten by God, feeling alone by God, a, a real thing that human beings go through, Christian or not. And I think chapter eight, as I read through chapter eight, I think chapter eight has something precious for you now or when you feel forgotten by God or abandoned by God or alone and isolated from God. So let me pray. We'll get to work. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for being gracious enough to us to reveal yourself to us through your word. And I would pray, God, that we would all have an extra measure of thankfulness today. God, when we read about your judgment, that we would not think, God, that we would, we would not give in to the temptation to think. That we will never incur your judgment because we don't deserve your judgment. God, may we not look condescendingly on those who drowned in your flood. 
And may our hearts be full of gratitude and thankfulness today as we see that there is little difference between us and them, that the difference is you, God, that you are a good God. You are a gracious God and you are a loving God who deals with his people according to his loving kindness and tender mercy, great forbearance and patience. And for those of us who are the redeemed here today, we have endless song in our heart because you have spared us, God. And not only have you spared us, but you have saved us. And not only have you saved us, you have adopted us. And not only have you adopted us, but you have brought us into your home to be with you forever. So God, with thankful hearts and grateful hearts, I I know also that there are people here today, surely there are people here today who are not faithful. And if there are some here today who are not faithful, but believe they are faithful because of something that they feel or something that a pastor said or something that they have done or a baptism. God, if there are people who are resting secure and they should not be secure, who are saying peace, peace when there is no peace, God, I pray you to awaken them this morning. That if they are in danger, God, that you would allow them to see the danger they're in. And then, God, when confronted with your gospel and your truth and your love and grace, that they would turn is our prayer. That they would come to you weary and heavy laden and they would find great rest in Christ. And for those that are here today, God, that that feel forgotten, God, that may be so used to feeling abandoned and feeling forgotten that they have forgotten they feel that way but who have not felt connected to you, who have not felt like they are in a walk with you, whose life is not dependent on you. God, I pray that you would bring encouragement to them today through your word, that the faithful would not be forgotten. That they would know that you are a God who always remembers his children. And I pray the great antidote for feeling abandoned today would be that your people would know that they have been and are remembered. That their life, that their hurt, that their joy, that every circumstance is deep in the mind and heart of their God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible... I hope you do. Genesis chapter 7. We'll work through this a a piece at a time. Let's start with the first five verses of Genesis chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate. And a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. 
And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. The timer is set for Noah. The timer is set. Over a year ago, God came and told Noah, judgment is coming. And now an actual timer is put in front of him. There's one week, seven days. Gather your family. Gather the animals. Get in the ark. Judgment is coming. Noah's been obeying God for a year. And no surprise, he continues to obey God. Loads up the ark. And there they sit, the door of the ark open and waiting. Waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled. Waiting for His judgment to come. Waiting for the rain to fall. Verse 6. I'll read through this account now of the flood. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth Forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. We'll come back to verse 16. Verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. There has been disagreement recently more than ever. There has been disagreement over whether or not this flood was a a universal flood or a local flood. And it's a popular disagreement and I want to speak to it. The question that's asked is, was this really a a worldwide flood or was this just a a local flood that's in this area of Mesopotamia, maybe just this particular Mesopotamian valley 
And until really recently, the last couple hundred years, Christians just took this at face value. Maybe as many of you have heard or were raised to believe, and that is that the flood covered the whole world. But Christians have pointed out that if you believe that, that the whole world was covered by a flood, that comes with some massive difficulties. It comes with some massive difficulties. And so as a way to deal with those massive difficulties, there's a newer view that's being promoted, and that is that the world wasn't actually flooded, but the the, the area in which Noah and these people lived was flooded. And the story is being told phenomenally. It's being told from the perspective of Noah. And from the perspective of Noah and everything he could see, the whole world was flooded. But it actually wasn't all flooded. One of the big proponents of this was a man named Bernard Ram in the 20th century. And he brought up, and I'll tell you what they are, some of the difficulties. Some of the difficulties. And he made the point of saying that every time the word all is in your Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean every single individual. And that's a true point. That is a true point. Sometimes your Bible says all and it doesn't actually mean all. For example... In Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, when Herod heard the news that the Christ was being born, it tells us that Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with them. Well, it doesn't in that context mean every single last individual, because every single last individual didn't even hear the news that Herod heard. Okay, but as far as Herod was concerned, as far as the author was concerned, okay, most people, every, all people, the word says, or in Psalm twenty-two, seventeen, you remember when David is when David is in pain, when David is suffering, and he says, "I can count all my bones." He doesn't literally mean that he can see and count every single one of his bones. So Bernard Ram was careful to use that as one of his arguments to say that, hey, just because the word all shows up here and it says that the whole earth was flooded and all mankind died, it doesn't necessarily mean that all means all. Just like in other parts of the Bible, all doesn't mean all. And the difficulties that he was trying to get out of were, one, he calculated that the amount of water needed to flood the earth like this, to be 20 feet high above every mountain. So you take the highest mountain, Mount Everest, which is over 29,000 feet high. The amount of water required to cover the earth like that would be, he proposed, eight times as much water as actually exists on the earth today. In springs and in lakes and in rivers and in oceans and in clouds, you take all that Water, you'd need eight times that to cover the entire world. So God would have to do, he said, an additional miracle to create all this water and then to uncreate all this water. As well, if the earth were to be covered with that much water, the weight of the earth would change so dramatically that it would throw the earth off its orbit. That was one problem. The other problem he brought up is how in the world could possibly members from every single animal species make their way from every part in the world to the ark. And once on the ark, how did they actually care for all of these animals for an entire year? As well, if the earth was flooded, you had a mixture now of salt water and fresh water. And if you have a mixture of salt water and fresh water, you have many marine species 
that are adapted to fresh water that would not have survived and those adapted to salt water that would not survive. And therefore, you'd have to have a, a whole new sort of marine creation by God after the flood. So these are difficulties. But no problem acknowledging difficulties. The question is, how are we going to deal with difficulties? Now, if some of the difficulties can be, can be answered, great. Sometimes difficulties are not answered. Here's the careful thing for, for Christians to do. When you want to get out of a difficulty that you find yourself in because of what the Bible seems to say, here's what you do. You keep reading your Bible. You just keep reading your Bible. And maybe it'll get worked out and maybe it won't. Maybe you'll read something in the Bible that'll actually help you to see what, what you saw before a bit differently. And some of the problems that science or biology brought up will, will, be, will be taken care of. Maybe they won't. But the answer, the, the, the fundamental way that a Christian must deal with these kinds of concerns is what does Scripture say? I'm not just saying that. We really believe that. Sola Scriptura, the Reformer said. Scripture alone. Scripture alone. So what does the Scripture say? A few things to point out. And I point these out to you to argue for a universal flood. This was not a local flood. This was a universal flood. And it's very important. Very important that you see this as a universal flood. First of all, if you look at verse 19, it says, And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The word for all there, the word for entire there is used twice, which is as close as you get in the Hebrew language to a superlative, which means that he's emphatically making clear that I'm not meaning all in the sense that all doesn't mean all. When I say all, I mean all. The author is saying when you read chapter seven, what do you see over and over and over again? The water prevailed, the water prevailed, the water prevailed, God's judgment prevailed, God's wrath prevailed. Over again, you see all livestock, all creatures, all wild animals, all mankind. It appears that word just six more times in this passage and twice more in verse 22 alone, including the two times in verse 19. So you see what the author is doing. This isn't an isolated use of the word all, where it can be up for interpretation. The author is using this word over and over and over again because it's very important that 21st century Christians don't land on the side of, oh, it was just a local flood. So he did that for you. He did that for you. All, all, all as well. When you read the account of this flood, it does not appear to be a local flood. This was a long flood. When you add up the the times that are given, which are given purposefully so that we know how long this lasted, The flood did not last 40 days and 40 nights, right? It rained. It rained and the springs came up for 40 days and 40 nights. That took care of covering the the mountains, right? 20 feet above the highest mountain. And then the waters began to descend, but very gradually. It was 110 more days before the ark rested on Mount Ararat. It was another 10 weeks 
before all the mountaintops became visible. And it was another 21 weeks before Noah and his family could exit safely. So over a year had passed since the first raindrop fell and Noah exiting the ark. It's also very conceivable that the waters continued to descend and have an impact on the topography of earth for years after Noah was able to exit the ark safely with his family. So if we're going to believe that this was merely a local flood, that doesn't square with the description that we read here, which is why John C. Whitcomb said this. How a flood of such depth and duration could have covered only a limited portion of the earth's surface has never been satisfactorily explained. And that's true. So now let me give you four, four points to support a world flood. I'm borrowing these from James Boyce, who borrowed them from Henry Morris, for what I think are the most persuasive points to argue for a world flood. And I'm belaboring this point, you'll see, because it's very important that you see that this was a judgment of the entire world, not just a local region. Number one, the construction, outfitting, and stocking of the ark would have been absurd if the flood were local. Look at the size of this ark. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. That's a big ark built to accommodate thousands of species. That is an absurd thing to ask Noah to do if it's going to be a local flood. Like you'd think God would have just said, move. Just move. I'm going to flood this region. You should move. And to the animals, migrate. Can you swim? If you can't swim, you should migrate. You should go over these hills because I'm going to flood this local region. Number two. After the flood was over, God promised never again to destroy the earth by flood. And this is a false promise if the flood to which it refers was local. Remember, we're going to read about this next week. God makes a promise to never do this again. God promises to never flood the earth again. Now, if he is referring to a local contained flood, then God has broken his promise innumerable times since then. Number three. In later chapters of Genesis, the Bible traces all the peoples of the earth to Noah and his three sons. In other words, all people came from Noah. So this is only a local flood and you have other pockets of people and other pockets of humanity from which descendants come. Then that does not square with the scripture that teaches us that all of us have Noah and his sons as our ancestors. And number four. Other biblical references to the flood presuppose its universality or at least do not oppose this interpretation. So when you look at other verses, and there are many of them, and I'll just read one, other verses in the Bible that talk about the flood, it does not appear that they are talking about a local, isolated flood. They're talking about the entire earth being flooded. For example, Psalm 104. Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9, says this. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. 
You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. The psalmist clearly has in mind a worldwide flood. Here's why the acceptance of a worldwide flood is so important. We have a tendency, and Christians are no exception. We have a tendency as, as human beings to look at things through rose-colored lenses, at least really important things. We tend to think things are not as bad as they actually are. Even those of you who are pessimistic, we still when it really matters, struggle to accept that things are really as bad as they are. And one of the things that we embrace here as a church, some of you have stayed here because of this, some have have left because of this, is that we fully embrace accepting how bad it is. I mean, I'm sure you've sat through sermons where 55 minutes is just digging, 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 and the hole gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And then finally, there's the light. The the picture of mankind, specifically the picture that the Bible paints of our hearts, is bad. You're bad. I'm bad. We take the Michael Jackson song to new meanings. I'm bad. And we accept that. Now, here's here's why it's so important. Because we're not just hammering that. Well, the Bible says so. That is true. So the Bible says that it really is that bad and conditions really are that bad. We're going to preach it. But there is another reason that we hammer this. And the reason is, is if. If you don't understand how bad it is, you won't understand how good God is. And so the the joy that we want you to have, it won't be full. The contentment, the satisfaction that I want you to have, it won't be as full. You won't appreciate your rescue unless you really grasp what you have been rescued from. This is why I believe so many Christians don't actually love God. They don't love God and don't have affections for God because they don't understand what he saved them from because he hasn't saved them from it. If you followed that. But when you understand what God has saved you from, that breaks you. And that brings you to your knees. And it brings it even brings you to your knees and brings more tears than the painful circumstances in your life. It's more overwhelming than those waves that crash over you. What's more overwhelming is that in spite of who I am, that God loves me and that he has saved me and that he has rescued me and made a way for me. And that the judgment that God unleashed on the flood, that that judgment flooded Christ and was more painful for Christ than all the pain and suffering endured in the history of mankind. 
And that that suffering was endured because of the joy that was set before Christ on the cross. And it was the joy of God being glorified through he being reunited to his children. But friends, listen, you don't get that. And you won't grasp that and you won't love God as much as he needs to be loved by you and should be loved by you, I should say. Unless you see how bad it is. So when we water down the flood, like less water. (laughs) We do we do a disservice to our joy, Christians. And you do a disservice to those who have not yet turned to Christ. Because it is those judgment waters that are brought up in Scripture to compel the unfaithful to turn to Christ. So do not water down the flood. This is worldwide judgment. And now two lessons in chapter 7 before we move to chapter 8. Two lessons. Not the only two lessons. Don't hear me say that. But two lessons Nonetheless, number one, there is a lesson here of God's great grace. The judgment. The most words here are devoted to describing the judgment of God in chapter seven and eight. I mean, most of the words are describing the judgment of God. Most of the words are describing his justice. There's there's more words given to that here than 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 any. Other theme, but don't miss, don't miss the lesson that's here of God's great grace. So I want us to understand the judgment, and I want you to under you know see, see this ark floating in God's judgment. But I don't want you to miss or forget the grace that has been extended to Noah and his family. The great grace that has been extended to Noah and his family as they are they are in this ark. And I want you to look specifically at an an illustration here of God's grace in verse 16 that I said we would come back to. In verse 16, it's the second half of the verse. The first half says, right, and those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. So everyone's now in the boat, but don't rush past the second part of this verse, which says what happened next. And the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. It's one of those phrases we just we want to pause and say, what is why God do it this way? He didn't there. There's no. okay. seven days are up. Hurry up. Get in there. Board it up. Noah. Get your tar. Get your pitch. Lock the dead bolts. There's still a leak. There's a crack. Seal this up. He didn't. He could have done it that way. God could have told Noah, "Okay, get yourself in the boat. Here comes the rain and shut the door. But this is not how God deals with his people. It tells us that the Lord shut him in. Which, listen, this is an illustration of the, the believer's perfect security in Christ. Our perfect security in Christ. The Lord 
secures and protects his people. You do not protect yourself. You do not secure yourself by good works. You do not protect yourself by being a good man or a good woman from God's judgment. The Lord protects you from his judgment. And the Lord seals the door, which is really good news, because if if I sealed the door and this is what you see many Christians do, right? Am I saved? Am I not saved? Not understanding eternal security, not understanding that as a believer, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. It starts with thinking that we save ourselves. And if you think you save yourselves, then you're right. It's totally logical to think that you can unsave yourself. If you swam out of the ocean, you can jump right back into the ocean. But you didn't save yourself, Christian. You didn't save yourself. You were drowning. Right? We know this. You were drowning in the ocean. You weren't a good swimmer. And there wasn't a life raft around that you grabbed hold of. God just he picked you up and he put you on Jonah 2 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So he saved you. He rescued you. He picked you up. He turned you around. He made you alive. He opened your eyes. He softened your heart. All biblical phrases. But God picked you up out of the water and he puts you on the shore. And and scripture says that he holds you and you are now in Christ. And Christ says, I will lose none that the father gives me. And here's the good news. Jesus doesn't throw people back in the ocean. He doesn't throw people back in the ocean. He doesn't. uh, God saves you. God never unsaves someone. You were not lost and you stumbled across God. You were not finding that Romans 3, 10 and 12 says no one seeks after God. No, not even one. You were stumbling around in the dark. God took the blindfold off and he 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 took you into his family. So if you're going to lose this thing, it's not yours to lose. It's him to throw you back or him to misplace you or something. And God does not do that. God does not do that. When he saves you, he adopts you. My wife and I, Lord willing, are weeks away from having our daughter's last name become our last name. Adoption finalized. I'm not adopting this little girl based on how I think she's going to turn out. And if she struggles, and she will. And if she sins, and she will. And if she backslides, and she will. And if she, I pray not, denies Christ, I will never unadopt this baby girl. God does not unadopt you. You are his son, you are his daughter. And he's giving Noah and his family the security even when God himself comes down and shuts them in. Nothing's coming through here. Nothing's coming through here. The Lord shut them in. Ephesians 4.30 Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Why should we not grieve the Holy Spirit of God? What's his argument next? Why do we not disobey the Holy Spirit of God? Why not disappoint the Holy Spirit of God? Because by him, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He has sealed you. Sealed you for the day of redemption. You, 
we don't do this anymore, but right, that would be that would be a letter with some kind of warm wax that was closing the letter. And then some piece of metal, often a, a ring, would be pressed into that warm wax and it hardened and sealed the letter. This is what it means when it says, okay, you've been saved, you've been brought into Christ, and now you're closed into Christ and you're sealed. And you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 tells us the same thing that Genesis 7.16. It says, Christian, the Lord has shut you in. Now, if you if you think that 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 gives you a license to go and do what you want because you are shut in, then you are not understanding what has actually taken place. Because if you're understanding what has actually taken place, the last thing you want to do is sin because you're so grateful of what God has done. The Lord shut them in. And then the second lesson. While there is clearly a lesson of God's great grace, there is also a lesson of the end of God's grace. The end of God's grace. God's character is gracious. God's character will always be gracious. It is who He is. But there will come a day when God is done extending grace. And that should frighten the unfaithful. Like Noah preached. Second Peter 3 tells us, like Noah preached, turn. The, ark's being, the ark is still open. When did the Lord shut him in? The very last thing God did. Until then, the door was open. The ark was open. And the New Testament tells us, what was, Jesus, what was Noah doing along with building the ark for 120 years? He was preaching the gospel. Turn, 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 that you may be saved. Come to God. We would say, come to Jesus. But then the floodwaters came. And there was no turning back. There is a lesson here of the end of God's grace. The day of judgment will come. John 10, 7 through 9 says, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Here's how this works. If you can hear my voice right now, then the ark has not yet been closed. Amen. Now either Christ will come back or you will die. And when one of those two things happen, the ark will be closed. And the ark is Christ. But now, you each are alive in a great age of God's grace. If you can hear my voice, 
then you hear me say, as Noah said, and as Jesus said, that the flood waters are coming. Jesus is returning. There will be judgment. There will be no last call. The game will be over. The time will be up. But the cry of the Christian now, the cry of the faithful to the unfaithful now is the same as Noah's was then. And it is come to Jesus. To those of you who are in Christ, may you find every blessing in Christ this week. To those of you who are not in Christ, what we mean is for those of you who are not in the ark, turn to Him and be saved. This is our cry. This was Noah's cry. The door is not shut. The door is still open. Come to God. Turn from your sin. Turn to Him. Isaiah said in chapter 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so the call that goes out in this age of grace is to all mankind, come to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Turn to Him. Ask forgiveness. You will find mercy in Him. Now, some will say this, if you've been listening carefully in our sermon series. Some will hear what Noah preached and you'll hear me preach and you'll hear us say, get in the ark. And you'll say, I can't get in the boat apart from God's grace. Is this a real invitation to turn to God? Turn to Christ? Why did Noah follow God? Why did Noah turn to God? What happened in Noah before he was able to do this? He was so sinful like you and me that God had to do in Noah what he has done in you and me who are believers. And that is he had to take Noah's heart of stone and give him a heart of flesh. He had to take the blindfold off. He had to open his ears to hear what he otherwise would not understand, to see what he otherwise would not see. He had to say to him, when he was dead in sin, come forth, come out, live. And the Holy Spirit had to work in his heart. We call this the doctrine of effectual grace or irresistible grace. And it is that you must place your faith in Christ in order to be saved. But no one... This is how sinful we are. No one turns toward Christ unless an extra measure of God's grace has been poured out on their heart to enable them to turn to Him. And that's how God gets all the boasting and we get none of the boasting. So when you say, come, get on the ark, some would object and say, well, what is the point of that? What is the point of preaching the gospel? What is the point of inviting people to come to Jesus? Why would Noah tell them to get on the ark when they can't get on the ark unless God's grace enables them? And that's all true. It is true. They couldn't get on the boat apart from God's grace. But there's something else that's true. They wouldn't get on the boat 
because they did not want to get on the boat. Do you see the difference? This is not God preventing people from being saved. There were no people coming to Noah and says, we want to turn to God. We want to be saved. We want to follow him. We're ready to repent. We're ready to obey him. And God's saying, no, I refuse you. I refuse to extend grace to you. That is not what you're seeing in Scripture. What you're seeing in Scripture is that no one wants God. No one comes to God. No one seeks after God. No one loves God. No one honors God. And the only difference between you, Christian, and the one who is not a Christian is that God has given you a heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone. He has regenerated you. He has caused you to be born of the will of God and not of the will of man. He has saved you and adopted you into His family. But you did not, on your own, separate yourself from all those unrighteous people by being righteous on your own. So here's how this practically works. Because people will take this too far. And then they'll reword Isaiah 55. And instead of saying, come, everyone who thirsts, they'll say, come, all you who are elect. Come, all ye who are predestined unto salvation. Come and be saved. That is not how we preach. Do not rationalize yourself into disobeying God. Jesus himself in Matthew eleven twenty eight said, come to me, all you who are weary. And if you think that he just gathered up a room of the elect. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest or Revelation twenty two seventeen, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So Noah got it, and we need to get it. Two things. One is, no one gets saved. No one becomes a Christian unless God does a regenerating work in their soul. And no one becomes a Christian if no one preaches the gospel. Which is why Romans 10 says, Oh, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. No preaching, no salvation. No regenerative work of God, no salvation. So how does this work out? Because I don't want you to become a Christian with so much doctrine in your head that you sit back in your predestination chair and say, well, it's all in God's hands, so why do I need to evangelize? Why do I need to share the gospel? And, oh, I don't need to pray because God already has this all figured out. So I want to help you not do that by encouraging you to do this. Preach the gospel. For you know that your friends and your neighbors and your family, they will not come to know Christ unless someone tells them about Christ. Over and over and over This is God's means for saving his children. And so you do that. And you don't try to look for some mark on them of whether or not they're elect. Because there isn't one. 
And you preach and you preach and you preach. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. That's what you do. And then you come over here. And then you get down on your knees. You say, God, when I'm preaching that gospel, will you please open their eyes to see it? Both true. We don't have to throw one out. Open their ears. Soften their hearts. Help them see what you've helped me to say. Grant them repentance. Give them the gift of faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Ezekiel 36, 26. Take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Acts 16, as you did with Lydia, open their heart that they may receive this message of the gospel. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear so that they would not be those who see and do not see and hear and do not understand. Do like you did with Lazarus, God, because my voice is one thing, but I know if you know if you call to them to rise from the spiritually dead, they will rise from the dead. So I'm going to cre- keep preaching my gospel and I'm going to keep praying my prayers. This is what Noah did. And this is what we must do. And the urgency of this Christian is that there is an end of God's grace. Chapter 8. Chapter 8. Let me just read verse 1. We'll go from there. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God is not a man. Sometimes the Bible speaks of God as if he was a man so that we can gain some sort of understanding of the mind and heart of God. It's called an anthropomorphism. Where God will be given man-like qualities and characteristics so that you can grasp what is going on in the mind and heart of God and what is going on with his people. So, for example, when it says that God remembered Noah, it doesn't mean that God forgot about Noah. It doesn't mean that there was a God had an epiphany. God's never had an epiphany. It doesn't mean that God was looking out over these waters and was surprised to find Noah. I totally forgot about you, Noah. I thought I flooded the whole earth and That's right. I made a promise to you. I've just been really busy. You know, Moses is not a set of keys. Uh, No, I'm sorry. He's not a set of keys that he's misplaced. That's not what it means when God says that he remembered Noah. What Moses is doing when he writes this is, is that he wants you to be brought in and to understand that from Noah's point of view, God had forgotten him. From Noah's point of view, he had been forgotten by God. And here God breaks through. Here God breaks through. And there's three things I want you to see. Three ways that God remembers Noah. That I hope will be encouraging for those of you who feel forgotten and abandoned and alone. One of the ways that we deal as Christians with when people are struggling, feeling alone and forgotten, is we tell them, well, you're not. 
which is sort of helpful. But not always. Right? We bring in the doctrine of omnipresence. I do this. Sometimes it works. We understand God. I know you feel alone, but you understand God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, which means he's right there with you. And sometimes people hear that and say, oh, I don't feel forgotten anymore. I don't feel alone anymore. And some people look at you sarcastically after you say that and say, thank you so very much. <laughs> I had never heard that doctrine before. Are you serious? I thought he had a certain zip code where he resided. And I was really forgotten and alone. When you feel forgotten by God, like the psalmists often feel forgotten by God and say, where are you? I mean, their cry to God is, are you kidding me? How can you sit there idly while the wicked flourish and I'm in pain and suffering? Where have you been, God? When are you going to show up? That's a very real emotion. And regardless of whether or not it's true, Sometimes we feel forgotten by God. And sometimes there can be a hundred people around us and we still feel completely alone. And I think God has some encouragement for you in Romans in, in Genesis eight, in Romans two, but in Genesis chapter eight. Three ways God remembers Noah. Three things God does. Let's go through verse five. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen one way that God remembers Noah God removes the water God removes the water there's been a year that all Noah has seen is water when he looks out the ark are you there God is this circumstance going to change is it ever going to be different? Is this going to get easier? Is this? Are you there, God? And one of the ways that God remembers Noah is he removes the water. Friends, sometimes God will in your life remove the water. God will by his power. And, and it says here that a great wind blue and it's the same word that's used for the spirit in Genesis chapter one that was hovering over the earth by which God created all things. It's pointing to the fact that this was a, a miraculous, powerful intervention from God where he he changed Noah's circumstances where the source of all his feeling of abandonment and, and alonement and feeling forgotten that God took the and the waters receded. And sometimes God will do that in your life. You're in the boat and it's, just, it's, it's floodwaters and it's chaos and then the boat will just, it'll land on firm ground and you'll see the waters recede and, and, and things will begin to go the way that you've been praying that they would go. 
The circumstances will be different. What felt undone will be redone. And it's just wonderful. Then this is always our priority in our prayers. This is exactly how we want to be remembered by God. I feel forgotten. I feel alone. And I know how I could not feel that way. And it's if you would remove the water and change my circumstances and get me out of this mess and bring what I want and change this to go circumstantially better for me. And God God did it with Noah and God can do it for us. And, and sometimes God will display his great power and he will remove the water. Sometimes he won't. And thankfully, God remembers Noah in other ways. I mean, maybe next year, God will remove the water. Because right? what's, what's, what's your water? What's your flood? What's your thorn? What's your trial? What's your circumstance? What, what's, what's the hole that you're in? What is the, 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 the source of depression, despair? And you know, you know, that if this thing changed, or if I had this, or if he or she turned, or that it would it would be totally, totally different. And you would not be in that particular flood anymore. So you pray for those waters to recede. But what if those waters don't? It may be different a year from now. It may not. It may be different ten years from now. It may not. The waters may not recede until you're in heaven with Christ. I, I just don't have a timeline. What else? Look what God does. Keep reading. Verse 6 through 12. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. They went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and, and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. That's what you're not going to want to miss. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. So let me say it this way. God gave Noah a sign through the sending out and return of the dove. You know the story. Noah's testing the, the environment. It is the, the water is not removed yet. Is it going to be removed? Is there going to be an end to this? So what does, he, what does he do? He sends out a bird and his idea, it's a good idea, is if the bird doesn't return, then obviously there's life flourishing somewhere because the bird can land and it has food to eat. And so he's hoping that that's going to happen. So he sends a raven, nothing. Sends a dove out, nothing. Sends a dove out again. And this is what gives him hope. The word so that things start to change. And he knows things about God now. And that is, this dove came back with an olive branch. 
And so God brought Noah a sign to remind Noah that God remembered him. You may still see waters. Circumstances may not be changed, but good is coming and an end is coming. And here was a sign for Noah to rejoice in. Some of you are like, I never thought Pastor Eric would talk about signs. <laughs> People are crazy about signs. <laughs> and don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> Just don't, don't misinterpret Gideon. Okay, don't put out your fleece and base big decisions in your life on signs from God. Please don't do that. You want to discern the will of God, read his word and do something. But do not sit around and wait for signs. I think that's what Jonah was doing when he said his will was, I just want to leave and not go your way, God. Send me a sign. And then here comes a ship headed for Tarshish. A sign, God, that you want me to go the other way. Was that a sign? That was not a sign. Not what he thought. Christians do this all the time. It must be a, and then they navigate their life based on these signs and they need these signs and they want these signs. Don't navigate your life based on signs. That is not how God calls you to live. But God will in his grace and mercy through his providence bring you signs to encourage you. Little things that may seem like the dove with the olive branch, it may seem meaningless. Have you experienced this? Where you're just, you're just, you're drowning. You're drowning and then something that seems insignificant, something small, something meaningless, and in an instant it reminds you that this is not happening by chance, but God remembers you and you are a part of His great plan. And he blesses you. Some of you, it could be as simple as seeing a sunrise or a sunset. And everything is put right in your heart for at least a moment. And you remember a sign that God brings to his people because of his love and his grace. You should look for these in your life. That you may thank God and bless God. For his reminders that he remembers you. And then number three, I think most significantly and most helpful. Because the water is receding, I don't know. I want to tell you that. I'm always tempted when I'm counseling someone in despair to say, it, it's, it's, it's gonna, your circumstances are going to change. Just hang on. And I just can't, just can't say it. Just can't do it. It's going to be okay. I just can't do it. I've said that and, and God made me a liar. So I don't know if the waters are going to be removed. I got no control over these signs. I don't know if God's going to bring you an olive branch in the mouth of a dove. But, but here's one. Here's one that's rock solid. It's rock solid. Verse 13. 
In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Here it is, verse 15. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. The third way that God remembers Noah is God gives Noah words. God gives Noah words. The last time Noah heard words from God was go, gather up your family and get in the ark. So over a year now, a year later, and here he is, and there is no recorded dialogue from God. There is no communication from God. But God now breaks through and remembers Noah, who has felt forgotten by God, who has felt alone, and God breaks through with his words. Now, here's why that's rock-solid For every Christian, not because God is going to audibly speak to you this afternoon, but because God has spoken to you. You have a luxury that Noah did not have, and that is any time you want, you can hear from God any time you want and as much as you want, you can hear from God. God, because he's given us his word. If you feel forgotten, if you feel alone, know that God remembers you and God has words for you and God wants to sit across from you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to talk to you. He wants you to hear his soothing voice. And that comes by hearing the word of God. Listen to it. Read it. Hear it. Are you a Christian? These words are for you. These promises are for you. This truth is for you. It is not outdated. It is not antiquated. It is not disconnected. It is not removed. It is exactly what you need from your God who remembers you. He closed with two quotes. Let's just read them. One from a book, one from the Bible. So I'll start with the secondary source and then end with the primary source. James Montgomery Boyce said it this way. The hope is in knowing that although God has not acted in your life for what is perhaps a long time, nevertheless, he will act again. And in the meantime, your job is to go on in faithful obedience to what he has already shown you, however long ago. That was. 
hard words. Habakkuk 3, verse 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we take joy in you, the God of our salvation. God, we are thankful for what you have saved us from, not what you have saved us unto in this life. And we know, God, that good and kindred may go, but your truth will abide forever. And we know that above all the experiences we have of pain and frustration and discontentment and suffering and unfulfilled desires and dreams, we know that above that, that we are saved. And so we take great joy in you, God, because you are the author of that salvation. God, may we be a people who are living lives that flow out of gratitude. May whether we're with our children or in our homes or on the roads or in our workplace, wherever we are, God, may we, may we think about and delight in and speak of your endless glory and your goodness to us in Christ. And may that be what enables us to obey our way to you. So we love you and we give you all praise, all glory and all honor. We pray this in the great and perfect name of Jesus, our Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.